We'll begin with where the text ends, which is here. Quote, the average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly short. But that isn't a reason for unremitting despair or for living in an anxiety-fueled panic about making the most of your limited time. It's a cause for relief. You get to give up on something that was always impossible. The quest to become the optimized, infinitely capable, emotionally invincible, fully independent person you're officially supposed to be. Then you get to roll up your sleeves and start work on what's gloriously possible instead. That's from the New York Times bestselling book, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. And as you can tell from the quote, Berkman, an award-winning writer for The Guardian and author of both 4,000 Weeks and The Antidote, presents us with an entirely different way of thinking about time management and our futile attempt to squeeze every ounce of productivity from our already short lives, telling us instead to relax and embrace what is possible, acknowledging and accepting the fact that doing it at all was never really an option anyway. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. In this episode, we talk with Oliver Berkman about some of the most important and challenging issues all of us face. How should we spend our time? How can we possibly get everything done? And how to accept the very real limits of our very real and limited human lives. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. And I'm Aaron Walter. And we'll be back with Oliver Berkman right after this. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. My name's Oliver Berkman. I'm an author and a journalist. So Oliver, we start the show with what we call the lightning round. It's a quick set of kind of A or B questions. You ready to play? Yes. Okay, here we go. City or country? Country. Walking or driving? Walking. Reading or writing? Writing. Home office or kitchen table? Uh, home office, uh, um, yeah, ideally. <laughs> <laughs> Pencil or pen? Pen. Typewriter or computer? Computer. Calendar or to-do list? To-do list. Habit or practice? Practice. Inspiration or persistence? A persistence. This can be my self-image, right? Rather than the reality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now or later? Now. Nice. Thank you. It's good stuff. You know, so I loved both your books. I love The Antidote, and I quickly read uh, 4,000 Weeks right after it came out. And the thing I wanted to start with was, in both of those books, you have this just fantastic journalistic approach to it. 
you know, many of these types of books, the author comes in with a point of view and they're trying to advocate something through the whole book. And what I really enjoyed about your approach was you seem to come to it with a really open mind and you're asking very open questions and going and seeking original sources and just reporting back to the reader. And then you make your own conclusions at the end, which in both books were incredibly powerful. And it seems to me that more than almost anybody I've read, you embody this reconsidering mindset, that ability to go in to an area that's well-traveled with a completely open mind and arrive at your own answers seems pretty amazing. I'm wondering if you could talk about that mindset a little bit. It's fascinating. Well, I'm very grateful for the compliments. It's funny because, you know, yeah, you're right. To do it in this way, you do have to have an open mind and you do sort of end up challenging your own preconceptions. I wouldn't say that I go into any of these when it gets to the point of researching a book as a blank slate. I mean, I did not go to motivational seminar in San Antonio where people were leaping out of their chairs uh, <laughs> shouting, I'm so motivated. I didn't go there <laughs> thinking it was kind of 50-50 whether I was going to think this was a great path to happiness or a troublesome one because I was heading out to investigate my hunch that it was a troublesome one. In my experience, you don't necessarily change your overall stance on things in that way, but you're definitely brought up short, you're definitely challenged, and you sort of see depths to it that you wouldn't have done if you were just doing that kind of, this is my view, now I will put the view into book form. You can always tell the difference because, I mean, if you're me or my editor, because you have the book proposal that I initially sold in both these cases where I tried to express what I thought was going to be in the book, and then you have the finished book, and there's often a very, <laughs> a very big gulf between them, which I think editors in nonfiction know and understand and are quite happy about because it shows that you know something's actually been done in between. The thing that I really value about that approach, as much as it's about not having a preconceived idea, is it's also about something that always feels quite important to me on these topics, which is not pretending that I have more of the answers than I do. Not being falsely modest either, I hope, but you know, it's stuff that I'm interested in, stuff that I've struggled with. So I'm now going to go and try and find out some answers to it. I hope that's relatable to the reader, but it's also just honest, right? Like it would be absurd of me to try to write a book suggesting that I had the whole topic of happiness or of time management like nailed. And all you had to do was gratefully copy my example. Like that's just, it's just not the case. So there's something more egalitarian with the reader, I hope, in doing it that way. One thing that struck me about the book was it seemed like a self-help book, and I don't mean it in the category title. I mean, literally like a project to kind of help yourself that I really appreciated. And, and the humility of not having all the answers came through and made it more, I think, more relatable for somebody like me. It feels like this book, the grand theme is like unclinching. I feel like all of the productivity writing and philosophies and frameworks are really about wrestling time to the ground and kind of like feeling in control of one's life. And this book is really about like, just give up, just <laughs> stop trying. And not in a futile way, but in sort of like a releasing way. Did you feel like in writing this book, did you solve problems for yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just a book of advice that I needed to hear and an exploration of issues that I needed to grapple with. And I think that's probably true of all books that have sort of an advice or that are in that advice mode. I don't think it's always honestly acknowledged by the authors of them, but I think it is always the case. Yeah, unclenching is a great way to 
put it, and I think sort of clenched would be a good way to describe <laughs> my attitude to time uh, back in the day prior to the sort of journey that's described in the book. And yeah, just more generally, I think this idea of a kind of defeat that you have to admit, a surrender that you have to go through, but not in order to live in despair or hopelessness, but precisely as the precondition for like coming to grips with life and doing the cool, meaningful, interesting stuff. There's clearly a parallel. I mean, this is all in all sorts of different fields, but there's clearly a parallel here, not to draw direct comparisons in other ways, but there's a parallel here with like the 12-step process and AA and this idea that you have to surrender something and give up the idea that you can exert a certain kind of control over your life in order to achieve a different kind. I mean, I use the word control for the thing you can't have. And then agency, I guess, is the thing that you can have that you can step into once you've like let go of this impossible quest for control. So yeah, I think it's definitely, it's that thing about recognizing where you're trying to do something impossible and letting go of it so that you can actually do the possible things that you might do. I think one of the things that you called out that really put things into perspective for me was you're always going to be missing out on something. Like it doesn't matter what you say no to, you're always going to be missing out on on something. And so it's like, what do you choose? And I think a lot of us have this kind of apprehension to messing up or choosing the wrong thing, but then you kind of put it in perspective. Well, that's just life. Like you are going to miss out on things. Things are going to come and go that might be more important than others, but you just have to kind of keep going. And I think that's a really important thing to call out is that not everything is going to be perfect, even if you try to make it perfect. Right. I mean, I always find this the shape of the argument here is something that appeals to me and occurs again and again in stuff that I'm writing, that it's about seeing that a certain situation is so unavoidable and so baked in to the situation that there's a liberation because you don't have to fight it anymore. So if some people have too much to do, but other people have found the technique that enables them to do everything, then that's high pressure because you've got to figure out like how you can find new untapped reserves of self-discipline and, and the rest of it. And then you feel bad and guilty if you fail. But if it's something that's universal, that's baked into being human, then it's very hard to keep beating yourself up about that, right? I mean, once you see that there will always be too much to do, you'll always be missing out on something, it shifts. And then it's like, okay, there is a challenge here, which is to make the best of things, to make the right choices, to take responsibility for the choices I make. But it's not that old challenge of trying to like wrap my arms around an infinite quantity. That was always off the table to begin with. What was your personal journey to deciding to write and spend so much of your time and energy thinking about these sorts of topics? I mean, obviously, you're a gifted journalist. You could have written about all sorts of things, all sorts of topics in the nonfiction world. Like, What drew you into like happiness and how to spend your life? These are big, meaty things. <laughs> I mean, originally what happened was... I was a general feature writer on The Guardian, so I would I would write sort of longer pieces, but about kind of anything. And I read some of these self-help and productivity books and sort of applied philosophy books just kind of because I was interested in them. And I'm happy to get like therapy-ish about why I should have had <laughs> such an interest in them. But from that point on, the process was just that a editor at The Guardian who became a very close friend just noticed that I was reading these things anyway and decided she might as well like derive some content from this. And so she came up with the idea of this column that I started writing at Guardian Weekend magazine that ended up going on for 12 years, which after a while it was, I sort of broadened it out 
in order to keep it going, really. But this was this sort of in this space of happiness, self-help, culture, productivity, time management. And that was just a great opportunity to kind of explore these things that mattered a lot to me, um, sort of do it in public, get feedback, test ideas out. If you do that for a bunch of years, one of the things you realize is you're never going to find the time management technique that makes life perfect and brings total peace of mind and sort of enables you to meet every expectation that you feel is upon you and, and fulfill every ambition that occurs to you. Because, you know, normal people may try five or six of those, but if you've got this whole weird enabling situation where you're doing it as a, <laughs> as a job, you get to try like a hundred of them. Yeah. And then you really realize that you're not just missing the perfect one, that there's something wrong with the quest that was useful in a way to get to indulge my neurosis. I'm going to take you up on the therapy thing, not uh, from a personal perspective, but from a sort of social therapy perspective, if you will. Like, it feels like like socially we're kind of diseased by this desire to be ever more productive. It seems an impossible quest. I'm, you've lived in two of the most driven economies in the world. You know, like, is there some thought socially about what's going on at the societal level? I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, right, is trace the way that this is partly a timeless human tendency to not want to confront death and our finitude. It's supercharged by our economic system and various other cultural forces and by technology. I mean, speaking personally, I mean, one of the things for me is I think I was definitely sort of grew up a fixed mindset person instead of a growth mindset person. I'm sure you're familiar with some of that language. And I think this is true of a lot of people who sort of are the straight A students at high school or whatever, which I'm sure is either all of you or some of you. But this thing where you sort of, you know, you're bright and you do well, but each time you meet one of these standards, it doesn't feel like something to celebrate. It feels like now you've, now you've got a new standard that you have to live up to the next time. And it's incredibly stressful. And then probably, this is my story, you do well, so you get to go to like a fancy university. And then you're with everyone else in the country who was that in that boat and suddenly it's terrifying because you're no longer it's no longer easy to do that and then if you're me you make yourself sick with stress over your university examinations and la 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 but the point is i'm just trying to get at is that that's one way in which we're sort of always upping the ante and upping the pressure to do more and to find ways to be more certain that what you're doing is good. And, you know, it, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder in a sense. And for me, that's when like methods of managing time started to feel like seductive because like maybe I can handle it this way. Maybe I can pack in twice as much exam preparation using some clever scheme. And then, of course, it takes years and years of adulthood to figure out the problem with this. But that's not universal. But the thing that's universal is this felt pressure, I think, to find ways to get our arms around more and more stuff and to be more sort of, have a sort of more unbroken streak of achievement. And, you know, there's been all this writing recently about the meritocracy that we live in now, to the extent that we live in it now, that the winners are losers as well as the losers, right? Because the reward for triumphing and for going to the fancy schools and getting the high status jobs in our economy is to be sort of constantly overworked and anxious. And, you know, it's not actually that much of a prize in certain ways. It kind of feels like everybody's going, going, going. We're kind of on the hamster wheel trying to succeed. Now we have social media, right? And now we have tech, which I think has just kind of supercharged things in the past 10 to 15 years, big time. Do you think it's like advantageous that we have this? Or do you think it's not advantageous to have social media and to have tech kind of supercharge these things? 
I mean, I think it has to be both, right? I think that you're right. Supercharging is the right way to think about it, catalyzing, right? It's not that tech is the savior of the situation or the villain. It's just everything is more intense this way. I think I do focus in the book probably more on the negatives than the positives because I think some of them are hard to see. Everyone complains about being distracted by their phones and about sort of the angry feuds on social media, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we don't always see how technology is sort of systematically increasing the field of things that we feel we have to get our minds around or our you know get through or experiences we have to have, all the rest of that. One thing that I'm trying very hard to do with my own tech usage is it's not about the amount. It's not even about having Sabbaths and where you put your devices away, but it's just about trying to sort of reclaim the agency or the power in the sense that these can be things that you decide to use for some reason and you go use and then you step back from. Instead of this flip where it's like the assumption is I'm basically online on social media all the time and then occasionally I might drag my focus back in order to do some sort of deep thinking or something. Oliver, there's a tricky thing that happens when we declare bankruptcy on productivity and efficiency and we say like we actually can't control our time. All of those things those devices that we create, are to try to take us towards our notion of success. And in doing so, create an identity of like, I am successful and I'm moving in the right direction. So after writing this book and kind of dismantling that idea of controlling time, how do you think about success and forming a personal identity now? I mean, in many ways, I wanted to try very deliberately to sort of be agnostic in the book about what constitutes a successful, happy, meaningful life, right? Because those kind of books of laundry lists that say like, you know, got to give more focus to your personal relationships, spend more time in nature, get enough sleep. It's like, firstly, like, yes, we know. And secondly, being told the list isn't a sort of particularly effective way to change in that direction. I guess that if the book works, I see it primarily as kind of clearing away a fog or, you know, helping remove a kind of an illusion that gets in the way of people doing the things that define success for them. So it's about sort of trying to unhook one's sense of success or identity from this futile and impossible quest to become perfectly optimized, you know, perfectly efficient, never have to make tough choices with your time seeing that that's all baked into being human. And I think mainly after that, it kind of follows naturally, or at least it comes to the end of what a book can do. You know, either my sense from talking to people with whom the book has resonated, they know by and large how they would like to rebalance their life in certain ways, and they know what would really constitute success for them. And if I'm helping, it's by helping them not get distracted so much by a delusion, by a wrong account of how to achieve that. When it comes to actually what is left there, I mean, I think that probably the insights in this book are valid whether your notion of success is a happy family in a vibrant social circle or the largest fleet of Lamborghinis you can acquire, right? <laughs> I think in, in both cases, living more in reality is actually going to be a more effective route to your goal, even if I have some personal judgments about the second one of those goals. Uh, there's something fundamentally kind of negative, or they call it the via negativa in theology and philosophy, right? There's something fundamentally about like, it's not this, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, and what it is, is kind of like, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Have you been surprised by the response to the book? 
I mean, maybe, maybe it says more about me than anything, but it, I see you and hear you everywhere now. And I hear so many people talking about the book. It seems like it's just going gangbusters. I have been surprised. I mean, partly this is because I am a defensive pessimist by nature, right? So I assume that things aren't going to go well, and then you can only be pleasantly surprised. But also, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it is a sort of somewhat hard to stomach message in certain ways. <laughs> and it's a little bit countercultural in a way. But I mean, I think, and this is, in many ways, this is something that technology and the internet especially has enabled. I feel like we're living in such a, a much more sort of, um, so much more potential for sort of variety and diversity of views in the little sort of micro communities that form around things. It's no longer, if it ever was, it's no longer a contradiction that something could sort of do pretty well, as I'm very grateful that this book is doing, and still just be totally a kind of tiny minority pursuit, right? I mean, it's still, it's not about to unseat the uh, central ethos of relentless productivity in Britain or America, but it doesn't need to. Another way of putting this is that overall book sales of any book are so low that, uh, <laughs> you know, if you can reach your people with a book, it can do well. And yet it doesn't belong to the world of blockbusters, but it finds the people whom it energizes, which I'm really grateful for. Well, it does seem like you've struck a vein there somehow. It seems like there's a lot of people that are very drawn to the message and are searching and they found something meaningful in the book, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I was always, I always remember when, um, when I was, I did a physical book tour in America for the, the antidote, not for this one, mainly because of the pandemic. And like people would come up to me at signings and say, you know, I feel like this book was written for me because around here, everyone is invested in positive thinking. And they would say that in like, every state so it wasn't um so it was clearly it was clearly always just the people who felt themselves at odds with the dominant culture but that's fine by me i'll just talk to those people i mean maybe it's a, maybe i should have ambitions to sort of change the face of american society but baby steps there's a timing thing though with this book too and the pandemic there's a a line in there where you say the great pause is a rare and truly sacred opportunity to get rid of the bullshit and only bring back what works for us the part about it being a sacred opportunity, that language in particular, feels very on the nose from my perspective. Could you expand on that and or tell us how you see that playing out in society? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I should first of all say that the specific words you quote there are me quoting Julio Vincent Gambuto, a New York writer and director. So I don't want to take the credit for that phrasing. But yeah, I mean, this is just pure luck, frankly, in terms of if this speaks to this moment. I, I was like, two and a half, three years late with this book, partly due to becoming a parent in the straight after I sold the book proposal. So its alignment with the experience of the pandemic was not pre-planned, but the pandemic is then covered in the final third because I was still writing. That's where I'd got to basically when it hit. And I think it was very strange to me how exactly right some of the things that we were seeing and learning from that felt for that stage in the book. I sort of gets gradually, I suppose, deeper or more philosophical maybe as you go through it. Yeah, I just think, on a whole different range of levels, right? There's the basic fact that when you're living through an event where huge numbers of people are dying, this is going to remind you about the fragility and precariousness of life, even if you're not directly personally affected. The sort of enforced lifestyle shift of the periods of lockdown when people were suddenly sort of obliged to go without kinds of ways of spending their time that they had deeply valued, but also in many cases, you know, came to find that the ones they had to resort to were possibly more meaningful in some ways. So from a position of relative privilege, I totally get it. Like I found being at home with my family and my son and having to spend lots of time in Prospect Park in Brooklyn instead of zipping around the 
world on planes to be, I mean, there were many aspects of that was just wonderful. I spent more time outdoors in 2020 than surely than any of the last like 15 years before that. And so there's that aspect of the things that we did benefit from once we were sort of forced to stop. So it's just this sense of possibility, right? It might be that the overall thing has been absolutely terrible, but it has shown us that actually there are choices that we have as a society or as individuals. And I think part of what's going on with the so-called great resignation, not the only thing, is people realizing like, oh, I can choose this and I've kind of got nothing to lose by choosing this. Obviously, you know, wage stagnation and things helps that to happen because the the payoffs of remaining where you are get smaller. But just this general sense of like, oh, there is room for maneuver, even in this kind of ridiculous culture that we've created. I want to go back just even a little bit further from the pandemic because your son is now five years old. Shows you how long I've been writing this book. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd mentioned in the book about using your time well and how that really shifted when your son was born. How did your thinking change then? Well, the first thing I think that having kids does, and I don't think any of these lessons only apply to parents. I think it's just that makes certain things very unignorable, right? Is that the extra pressure on your time, you know, even when it's two parents raising one child and even when you're not the mother who's, you know, I think this is more true for my wife than me, but like your time is just so full suddenly and you're trying to squeeze work into so much less time and friends, if they get a look in at all into even less time, that this fact of our limited time, which is true for absolutely everybody all the time anyway, whether they're parents or not, becomes much harder to ignore. So that's useful and salutary, I think, apart from anything else. It becomes very obvious that you're not just trying to get rid of all the irrelevant stuff so you can focus on the important stuff, but that you're actually having to choose between really important stuff. And hopefully, like me, you're in a position to sort of backpedal on work for a bit while you focus on the newborn baby. And But you, then you're really aware once you ramp back up into work that you could be spending that time with your son and you're not. So this sense that there is sacrifice involved, which there always is for everyone, is a lot harder to kid yourself about. And then the other thing is that what I did initially, as I write in the book, and trying to sort of take the mindset that I was still in then of doing things right and being productive and efficient and apply that to parenting is really not going to work. So you can buy all the books like I did and, you know, try to figure out how to do parenting right. And it makes another thing unignorable then, which is the effect that this has is to sort of put all the value of what you're doing into this question of, are you doing the right thing for the child's future? As opposed to, are you present in that real moment with your child right there? So this, again, another thing which is universal, not limited to parents, about how our tendency to try to use time well actually ends up postponing the meaning of time to the future always. It means that we're always getting somewhere and never actually present somewhere. That becomes like so much more absurd because like, what the heck do you think you're doing? You know, missing those real moments with a whole new person for the purposes of some future goal achievement. So yeah, it just sort of throws things into relief in a way that I found very salutary because I was not able to carry on ignoring them. In the book, you reference a different model, a different way of thinking about time, not a thing that we, like a commodity that we spend. That's the language that we have around time. But you talk about like, it's something we share. And you talk about the risk of desynchronizing our time in society. 
And there was a great story about Mark Manson that I think this audience needs to hear. Could you share that with us? I take it that one part of our sort of prevailing ethos of using time well is that the ideal is to be in total individual control of your time. Very, very few of us may get there, but the ideal is taken to be that, you know, you could get up in the morning and do exactly what you wanted when you wanted it and work where you wanted, if at all. And you wouldn't be bound by outside authorities. And so then I write about digital nomads because I think digital nomads are the sort of epitome, the sort of vanguard or whatever of this attitude. The idea that, you know, the perfect lifestyle would be to run your internet business from a laptop, moving around the globe wherever you wanted. Total freedom. And of course, what you find and what Mark Manson found and wrote very eloquently about is that it's really lonely. There's a passage that he wrote about where he's talking about visiting all these extraordinary wonders of the world, Great Wall of China, et cetera, et cetera, and doing them all alone and realizing that something for him essential was missing from doing it all alone. And about a, another, another friend of his, this is the image that always stays with me, you know, sitting in a Japanese park in the city that he was visiting and watching a family just biking through the park on a weekend morning and realizing that he didn't have the freedom to do that kind of ordinary thing anymore, right? To just go on a bike ride with some people that you are close to because the people he was close to were all over the globe and were all on doing their own thing independently. And so it's not really freedom at all in that sense because you've removed the possibility of various things that really matter to us. So I just use that as a way in really to talk about how, you know, a, a huge part of the value of time is that it is coordinated with other people's and the, the solitude that comes from not being able to synchronize your time with other people is really a very lonely kind. I'm still enough of an introvert and a solitude-loving person to think that the ideal is that I have all these opportunities to be in synchrony with other people, and then I can still go away for you know hours at a time and be antisocial. But we do need those rhythms, and that means necessarily, I think, that we have to give up some of the power to determine when things happen, because otherwise it'll never happen. I think it speaks to some really big themes in our current times. There's people who want to be totally autonomous and off-grid. We have people who want to retreat to their own corners of information and not be connected. Very nationalistic thinking. It's a time where there's a shift. The pendulum swings towards individualistic thinking. And this model kind of challenges that and calls into question, is that really the way forward for us? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And it kind of cross-cuts politics as well, doesn't it? Because one thing I can never quite figure out is whether the ideas I'm putting forward in this book are sort of like conservative or whatever the radical, the opposite of conservative. You know, it's, <laughs> in some senses, you know, maybe we would all be happier living in the sort of thickly bound communities that we used to live in before we all became sort of global citizens. But on the other hand, you know, the sort of hyper-libertarian individualism that is, I think, more normally associated with the right of politics is absolutely the same recipe for sort of loneliness and atomization. So it doesn't map simply onto any of the major options for sort of political change in the culture at the moment, as far as I can see. I suppose it's communitarian in a sense, which is always one of those political positions that's slightly at odds with conservatives, progressives, and, and everyone else. It's an interesting, um, I mean, saying it's a political battle is maybe overselling a little bit, but it's an interesting battle just in the office space itself. 
you know, I've had a traditional job in traditional tech companies for a long time. And there was something about going to the office every day and knowing you were in those rooms together on the whiteboard, interrupting each other in the halls. There was something about that space that frankly, as an introvert was making me nuts. So for me, <laughs> working from home has been fantastic, but it's only because I'm at a point in my career where I have a larger social network. But even that said, I mean, there are the few times when we get together as a group, whether it's at a WeWork to, to work together or something, or we just have a socials thing. And I realize that I'm completely fooling myself that I'm okay working at home alone. Like when I get, <laughs> right? when I get yeah. back into yeah. those environments, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. Like, this is like seeing clearly again. This is, this is like if the, the clouds cleared up one night and you could see the Milky Way, you're like, oh yeah, this actually is a lot better <laughs> when we're all together. Well, it's just like, who would ever have thought that we didn't need both of these? I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like, so maybe hybrid working is going to be a wonderful, brilliant solution. But like, who would ever have thought that we didn't need people around us and space and time to think? It just seems so obvious that we would need those. Yeah. And I've always been someone who sort of thought that what I wanted to do was go off to the mountains on my own for a week. And then I would book that holiday, that trip and like, Three days of it would be brilliant. And then I would just be so sick of my own company. So yeah, maybe with co-working spaces and hybrid working and things like that, there's a way here that can really get that balance nicely. Yeah, I guess there's a reason that the, the castaway style movies always seems like the people want to get off. It's never like they arrive on the island by themselves and they're like, oh yeah, this is it. This is, this is what I've been craving. Right. <laughs> Finally, some alone time. No, we romanticize sort of recluses and hermits and people, but they are either driven by overwhelming religious motivations, or they're often, I think, pretty troubled people who find it very hard to interact with uh, the rest of society. How has your move been? So you were you you mentioned earlier that you were in Brooklyn, and, and I, know, I think you recently relocated from Brooklyn to um, a smaller, more rural area in England. Like, how has that been for you sort of psychologically? You know, like, I, I'm always sort of uh, fascinated by when you look up at the stars, and I think about what it must have been like, even in Roman times, you know, you got a million people in a city, but when it gets dark at night, you can still see the stars. Yeah. And how that must have just completely altered your perception of the universe and where you stood in things. It has, you know, it's like, it's only, it, as I was saying, I think before we recorded it's it, for now, it's only a, a sort of temporary move, but we'll see. We're in the North York Moors, specifically talking about the stars. It has some, um, I forget what it's called, but there is like a international dark skies designation, which we have around here to say that light pollution is so non-existent that it's really good for like stargazing. I'm not knowledgeable about astronomy, but yeah, on a clear night here, you step out and you feel that you're surrounded by a dome of the cosmos is there. And, you know, we're not far from a town, really. It's, you know, 20 minutes drive. If I want to go and get some groceries, it's not crazy. But that's enough to make you feel that you have to sort of plan things. I was completely accustomed in Brooklyn to running out for the final ingredient at the bodega for what I was cooking, like while the thing was bubbling on the stove. You can't do that here, right? That's not going to work. So you have to interact with as give and take with the environment in that sense a bit more. But then I get to go on like, you know, I try to spend at least an hour every day just like outdoors in it. It's kind of bleak around here and kind of barren in some ways, but I that's my favored thing. Anyway, my wife thinks I am vastly more relaxed here so and she's probably a much better judge than me uh yeah, so, i would think yeah that's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean there is something about just not having the ability to fall into the belief that you're some little purely independent atom that doesn't need the other people and the, the land and doesn't need to think about the distance it is to get places and things that feels to me very 
it's very good for me somehow. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that. I'm the same way. I live about 20 minutes away from a grocery store. You know, moving from San Francisco down here, it was a big adjustment. I always say I see more cows than people on a daily basis. <laughs> Again, it was this huge mental shift, but I think it also made me realize like what was important in this world, I guess, and like how you were maybe important or less important. I think me coming from this like, you know, big tech background and being in the middle of Silicon Valley to moving to a place where the average age is like an 80-year-old human being, like they don't care what you do. They just want to know you as a person, right? And I think it, again, shifts your perspective about how you spend your time and who you spend your time with, right? Is it's not like this like busy hustle and bustle, but it's more thoughtful in terms of what you want to do with your day-to-day life and how you want to kind of like capture all of the moments in the day, so to speak. Yeah. No, I agree. There's something good about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just an unusual moment too, because when I think about moving to the country, so to speak, you know, 20 years ago, I would have, my initial response to that would have been, oh, it'd be super isolating. But in reality, you guys obviously have high-speed internet. So, you know, it's not exactly like you're disconnected. You're just in a different place physically. There's a convenience factor to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I will also say that there's a strange sort of scale issue between the US and the UK. There's this saying that I think is so very true that really tells you a lot about American and British culture, which is that British people think 100 miles is a long distance and Americans think 100 years is a long time. <laughs> and, um, and it's like, it's, it's exactly right, right? Because my parents will like, if you're going on a three hour drive somewhere, that's like, you maybe have to stay for three or four nights to justify driving three hours. And then Americans drive all the way, you know, out of New York City to upstate for two nights at the weekend or whatever. So part of that is, comes from the fact that Britain is on a smaller scale and it really isn't very hard to be in London from here, let alone Newcastle, Leeds, these good big northern cities. So, you know, it's not a huge, huge undertaking to be in the cosmopolitan center of a big city. And I like that arrangement. And yeah, it's the stuff around here is pretty old. There are churches that <laughs> date back to the seventh and eighth centuries around around here. Yeah. <laughs> and that changes your perception of yourself? The age of things? I mean, I think in some ways that you can't avoid sort of contextualizing yourself in that and feeling on the one hand, much less significant, but I sort of get at this in the book, right? It's like, there's something great about that. There's something great about the lightness of that. This notion that every choice I make in the day is the biggest decision that has ever been made in the world is totally just paralyzing and gets in the way of doing the things that I want to do. So I'm actually very happy in some ways to be reminded of that. And there's something really sort of moving about feeling any part of history that goes back that far, even though all of us are part of that history, right? It's not just because there's a ruin of a monastery down the street from me that goes back to that time. It, you know, The land we're on has been, wherever you are, has been there for, for that long. In the book, you talk about middling opportunities. Those are things that you could do. Like That'd be a pretty good thing to do, but it may not be the best choice to do. I think a lot of people, especially in this audience, probably relate to that of knowing what is the right thing to do How do you think about, you know, like sometimes we need to think very deeply about, is this the right choice? And sometimes we kind of just need to plod forward and just make a decision and and move on. Yeah, I don't think there's a 
a single good answer here. I think the middling priorities lens is very useful. Somebody told me the other day that Americans don't say middling. And I'd lived, I'd lived in America for more than a decade and it hadn't occurred to me that I was using this word. We don't, but I like it. I like the word. <laughs> <laughs> it's the things that you're interested in doing with your life, but not the ones that you're really, really, really interested in doing with your life. And they are hazardous because they are sufficiently alluring for you to invest time in them. So I think we all have experience of certain friendships and involvements, maybe outside of work, maybe at work where, um, you know, they're not valueless, but the time invested doesn't really seem to map given that they are taking away time from things that we, that we know are really important. So that's an important lens. Once you are making decisions among things that you feel are very, very meaningful, I agree that then I mean, a lot of time can be wasted trying to decide between them when the answer is that it kind of doesn't matter very much, right? You might be familiar with this thing called Fredkin's paradox, which states something like the fact that, you know, if two alternatives are both very compelling and meaningful and important, it feels like the decision is a lot harder, but thinking about it rationally, it can only matter less. The more, the more obviously important they both are, the less it can really matter which one you choose because you are not going to fail to be spending your time on something meaningful. So yeah, I agree. You point to sort of interesting tension, I guess, between trying to be quite bold about saying, well, my time is so limited, I'm going to really slice these choices in two and focus on these ones and not these ones and really make a decision in that respect. Alongside the fact that on a sort of moment-to-moment basis, the only way to proceed may often be to just feel a little intuitively what you're drawn to and do that and not worry very much about whether it's the right thing to be doing. So I'm sort of curious what comes next. Like, what are you thinking for the next book? You've, you've taken on happiness, you know, how to spend our <laughs> limited amount of time that we have here on this mortal coil. Like, like what's left? The meaning of life? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I don't I mean, I, I, I am trying to pull together thoughts for a new book, but I'm not, I don't want to assume that I have to come up with some like whole new life philosophy. The pressure might be too great. I mean, a couple of things that really interest me. Well, one of the things that really, really interests me is this question of, there's a question about living these ideas and sort of embodying these ideas. And, you know, one of the things that people have actually suggested is that there's room, maybe not in book form, but there's room for something to sort of take these ideas and approaches to life and think about like, there must be some form, some kind of scaffolding to sort of help people actually sort of, you know, keep this in mind and go forward with it. Because I think there is a risk with any kind of book that tries to sort of trigger a perspective shift, that you sort of have the perspective shift and feel, think like, well, that's great. And then a few weeks later, you're back to your old way of living. So I'm really interested in that sort of, you know, the knowing doing gap, the fact that we can know what's right for us all the time and not actually do it. I think if anyone could solve that, they would be a billionaire. So I'm not expecting anytime soon to have the answer to that. But I think that that's where my thoughts are at, I guess, right now. I don't want to do another book that in a couple of years would just be like, okay, forget all that that I said there. This is the right way to think about like, you know, that unless that was an honest reflection of my change perspective. I don't think that would be uh, really make sense. So I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, we've got one last question for you before we let you go. If your 25-year-old self could give you a piece of advice today, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. That's a difficult one. Yeah, I'm full of advice for my 25-year-old self. <laughs> Standard way of asking this. 
the first thing that springs to mind would be something to do with taking risky decisions. I think there was a not not I don't mean like danger to life and limb decisions. I mean like uh, there was something that I had when I was in my twenties that I actually think I've started to recover. So I, I'm being a little bit disingenuous, but looking back, I'm quite amazed at my ability to sort of relocate from one country to another, to drop out of a PhD program that I kind of imagine I would have felt an enormous amount of pressure to try to stay in. I was quite willing to just sort of do things on a dime that turned out to pay off. And so I would say like, don't be scared of doing things on a dime if they feel like the right thing to do. Now, I actually think that in the last few years, I've kind of recovered a little bit of that, but I think there was a long bit in the middle when uh, I let the feeling that the stakes were too high sort of put me off that. Because I think of myself as a cautious person and a sort of risk averse person. And then I look back and I was like, oh, well, you actually did those things. Like, so that was good. Yeah, it's interesting, the whole idea that like, actually the stakes maybe aren't that high. I mean, it's sort, right. of the, it's sort of the message of a lot of the book, right? Is that you're not that significant. The stakes aren't that high. Like, don't stress about it so much. Right. And, you know, yes, exactly. And I increasingly think like, you know, look, as long as the people I love the most are okay, and we're all like, you know, spending our days in some way that is broadly fulfilling to us, like, and helpful to other people, then like, that's it. The standard is met. <laughs> awesome. Oliver, where can people learn more about you and your book and all that you're up to? Well, the book and the books are available wherever you get your books, I hope. And then my website, oliverberkman.com, will tell you about those and some of my writing. And it's a place to subscribe to my email newsletter that I call The Imperfectionist. Fantastic. And the audiobook, just a plug for your audiobook, the performance was, was quite good. Oh, thank you very much. I, uh, yeah. That was a fun thing to do. I was uh, glad of that. In the middle of the pandemic, in an otherwise empty studio at Macmillan Audio, it was a strange experience, but it was, it was great. Oliver, what a treat to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. So that was awfully inspirational. What do you guys think? Like, Aaron, why don't we start with you? What, what were some of your takeaways? There's a lot. I will say, I just want to preface this, that's it's definitely the best book I've read of 2022. Now, we're early in 2022, <laughs> but I feel pretty confident that by the time we get to December, he's still going to have that top slot in my reading list. I really just found it refreshing, relieving to hear a different perspective on the idea of managing time, that the promise of managing time, it's a lie, and that we should let go in many respects. A couple things that really stuck with me that kind of spoke to me directly. Soon your sense of self-worth gets wrapped up in how you use your time. And I personally am guilty of being pathologically productive. I really enjoy productivity. And that kind of reminded me what Oliver was saying about that in the book and kind of touched on in the conversation today. Remind me a little bit of Kieran Setia. Was, was also a guest uh, on the show about telic versus atelic activities, things that we do for like kind of immediate gratification and things that just they never get accomplished, like playing piano, for example, or raising a good child. Like, do you ever really accomplish that? It just keeps going. So the idea of letting go of those productivity frameworks as a crutch letting go of that philosophy or that kind of rigged thinking that I have control of my time, 
it lets go a lot of a lot of the anxiety for me around how I use my time and then how that in turn shapes my perceptions of who I am as a human being. So Meredith, given your professional background, <laughs> I definitely want to hear, <laughs> hear your perspective on this one. I mean, you are a professional to-do person, getting stuff done, managing things. You know, professionally, when you were working in tech, it was all about managing quote-unquote productivity mm-hmm. um, and trying to get the list completed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I realized when I was reading this book and when we were talking to him is like, he nailed it on the head. You can finish your to-do list, but there's always going to be 10 more things that you're going to add to your to-do list. And there's never any such thing as done. And I think instead of getting your feeling of accomplishment by finishing your to-do list, you need to look elsewhere for those feelings of accomplishment, or you're always kind of going to be disappointed. So, you know, I think that was a big thing for me. And I think the other thing is like, you know, he he said this towards the end is sometimes the decision doesn't matter that much. And he's right. You know, you're always kind of worried about what decision that you're going to make. But in the end, like, do you really think about it? You know, do you really think about some of these minute details like booking airline tickets and spending seven days over analyzing the price and the times and when you arrive and what airport do you get into? Like at the end of the day, does it really matter? And so I think for me, it's just kind of like, yes, while I thrive off of productivity, I also need to shift my attention and my focus to other things to feel accomplished. I enjoyed his advice, this 25-year-old's advice for his present-day self about embracing risk to a certain degree to be able to be open to trying new things. In the book, he said, choose uncomfortable expansion over comfortable diminishment whenever you can, which is that growth mindset that he was pointing to. And for me personally, that never steers me wrong. If I'm going in a direction that makes me a little scared and is probably towards some sort of growth, chances are I'm probably going in the right direction. Also, like that part he had about, you know, the trap of the meritocracy in this productivity culture is that nobody really wins. It's a completely unwinnable game. Either you're super productive and you rise through the meritocracy, in which case you just have more stuff to do, or that doesn't work for you and maybe you're not as productive and society judges you a different way and then you're sort of bounced out. And so it's not working for them either. I don't know if he has an answer. I don't have an answer. I don't know if there's a social answer, but somehow how do we, at least as individuals, find some way to escape that endless pursuit? And part of it, I think, is what he's getting at with the, your list is never done. Like this idea that you're going to put stuff on the list and it's going to get empty, that is just not the state. There's going to be a river of things and you're just going to reach in and pull a few out. And it's also this interesting balance where he talks about living. I think a lot of the book is living with intentionality and thinking about your choices in a hard way. But to your point, Meredith, not being overwhelmed by that and not getting too myopic about it. You want to be intentional, but you don't want to be obsessive. I don't know. That seems like a delicate balance. What do you think about the idea of success for you yourself personally? You know, Aaron, I don't know. I haven't been able to figure that out yet, which might be part of why I'm enjoying so much doing the show. It's just this very interesting way to try to discover these things for yourself. It's a little bit like Oliver talked about he wrote the book because he needed to read the book. And, you know, 25-year-old Bob would look at 58-year-old Bob and be blown away by what he sees as success. But I can tell you, 58-year-old Bob doesn't wake up in the morning thinking he's horribly successful. You know, I find that incredibly frustrating because there doesn't seem to be some model of when you feel like you've arrived. 
And I do wonder, like, if anybody ever feels that, you know, like, whatever height of accomplishment you have, you know, are you always unimpressed with that because it's something that you were able to do? It's a great question. It's certainly not one that I've been able to answer despite trying. Yeah. I once asked my mom on the occasion of her 60th birthday, I said, what does it feel like to turn 60? And she said, it feels exactly like it felt when I was 18, but I'm just in an older body. And I think it's just the human condition of we're always trying to figure it out. And I don't know if we ever get to that point where we really understand the mechanics of life and time. But I feel like Oliver Berkman's book definitely points us in the right direction. That's a beautiful story from your mom. I will say that as I've gotten older and with the pandemic, I think I've been consciously trying to be more gentle and more kind. And if I see small things in the world that I can do to make it better, I will try to do that. And sometimes, honestly, it just takes the form of picking up trash you know, that you see on the street. Sometimes it just you know, takes the form of slowing down and helping somebody at the grocery store trying to get something off of a tall shelf. So it's these tiny little things. I don't have any illusions about being able to fix the world or fix myself or have some arrival at having been successful. But I think I do have some sense of being an asset to my community and to the world and kind of having a life well-lived. And that seems much more doable and more sort of a daily practice than success, which seems sort of like an arrival point. Meredith, this is actually something I think you're really good at, is serving a community, taking care of other people, and or just bringing people together. This is something that you do in some of your other endeavors. And when we were talking to Oliver about you know, the risks of being asynchronous from society, I feel like somebody like you, you're the exact opposite. You're always connected to other people. And it seems like it brings you a lot of joy. It does. I mean, yeah, it definitely does. I think... What I realized more than anything is, like Bob said, it's nice going into an office. It's nice being around people. But I think also having those connection points with just many people throughout your day is is equally as important. And I don't think you have to go somewhere to do that. And I think technology has given us that big of an advantage today. But I still think that it still gives you the opportunity to do good things and bring people together and introduce people and help people in times of need. And I don't think we were thinking about that necessarily before the pandemic. It was kind of like thinking about ourselves, go, 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 got to get things done, but maybe not for the greater good. And I think, I don't know, the one thing it's taught me of moving down here and slowing down dramatically and then getting hit with the pandemic is that people are always there and people always want to be connected with each other. You just have to find them, you know? And I don't think there's any particular route you have to take. It's just being open to finding them, you know, whether it's meeting people in your community on a walk or whether it's taking a call from somebody who's, you know, messaged you on LinkedIn. My thought is you also don't know where those connections are going to take you. And not just like for a business standpoint, but personally too, you know, like I think about you two and how you met and how Bob reached out to you and look at years later, we're all on a podcast together. (laughs) didn't see that one coming yeah yeah you never do the good ones you never see coming and that's what I think keeps me pleasantly surprised right that kind of is what keeps me going because I think we just have this 
negativity in the world. Like every time you turn on the news or every time you, you know, read a newspaper or there's just, there's this constant influx of like things that make us anxious. But at the end of the day, like what's going to make you happy and what's going to make you feel like you are part of something bigger. And just having that one email reach out between you two changed the course of the three of us and how we interact and what journey we're on today. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there for today. So thank you both for joining as always. Thanks everybody out there for listening and a big giant thanks to Oliver Berkman for joining us and being our guest on the show today. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.